God, I, I'm, I, I live in this uncertainty all the time, this tension of thinking that I know and having no idea. So in this particular time and space, I ask for your wisdom and your guidance. And I also ask that you would do your part by your spirit to translate my jumbled words and my jumbled thoughts for my friends here, that we can be inspired once again as to how this movement of Jesus has progressed to this day and how it can move forward into the age that is coming. So I pray this um, with full trust and faith. Not in my teaching, absolutely, but in full trust and faith in who you are and how you have lived and moved and worked and inspired people throughout the ages and trusting that you are still doing that and will continue to do that even today. And I pray in your name. Amen. This particular series has been welling up in my heart for years. About 15 years ago, I was in the car with a publisher, a well-known publisher, a Christian publisher, and I'd been thinking about my own faith journey. Many of us are familiar with this idea that the place where we were is not the place that we want to be, but we're not quite sure where we're going. And I just very casually asked this kind person who I just happened to, through a series of circumstances, be in the car with, with this person who was part, part of this publisher. And I said, would you publish a book entitled Leaving Christianity to Follow Jesus? And he laughed at me just like that. And then he paused for just a second because 15 years ago, this whole idea of leaving the faith wasn't really um, kosher. Can I say that in a synagogue? Okay. Uh, it wasn't really kosher. <laughs> that was 15, 17 years ago. I can't even remember now. Over the course of the last several years, I've been collecting notes upon notes upon notes, things that I've observed, articles that have been sent to me, conversations that I've had. I've been throwing them into a bucket. And um, I've been thinking, maybe I'd like to write a book or something. Maybe that's something that this would like to take place. And over the course of the years, it has evolved into this thing with the working title that I have called The Way Forward. And the general idea is there are things that I've inherited in my Christian faith and journey that I don't know if I adhere to anymore. I'm not quite sure what I think about them. I'm not quite sure if I value them in the same way. But at the same time, I don't really disdain them. I don't really think that they're horrible or mean or ugly or need to be done away with. And so I've been wrestling with this for years and years and years. And the most recent iteration of that wrestling has been my life and my faith really cannot be sustained upon the things that I really don't like or don't adhere to. I can no longer or I really shouldn't sustain my way of living into the future based upon deconstruction, based upon the things that I don't like anymore. That's not a, way, that's not a sustainable way to do it. And so I've moved and shifted to this thing called the way forward. I want to know what are these core things. Now, we went through an entire series called the So Series, you know, an inquiry into what are the core Christian beliefs? What are those things? And we tried to pull away from some of the common popular definitions and try to instill some other definitions within there. And so we've done some of that groundwork. And what I'd like to do is follow up from that and then ask the question, does that, what we just did and all the other possible areas of what this movement of Jesus is all about, does it have any relevance for moving forward into this new era? 
What does it look like moving into literally the third millennium? We're already deep into the third millennium. Into an era of human history that is unlike really any other. Those are the questions I've been wrestling with. So a couple disclaimers. Number one, I'm not going to answer that question in today's talk because, again, the thoughts that I have in my head are just really jumbled and they're, uh, they're, there's a myriad of notes. But what I'd like to do is share with you some reflections upon how I've begun to approach this question. So it's not necessarily a, a teaching like here's a Bible lesson or something, but I just want to share with you from my heart, a little bit different from what we've done before, here's just some wrestlings that I've had, some thoughts that I've had, some reflections that I've had that I'd like to offer and propose to you. For some of you, what I have to share, I think will be exciting. It'll be liberating. It'll be freeing, actually. It'll be, oh, this weight that's lifted off. I now realize how I can then grab onto some of these ideas and then move forward. But for some of you, I have a feeling that some of what I might share might actually be concerning because it leads into some other very challenging possibilities. I'm very aware of that and recognize that I'm not going to be able to address all of those, but I wanted to provide for you that disclaimer. I'm just going to share with you some thoughts and reflections. Are you okay with that? Is that okay? So for those of you who are new and visiting, so glad you're here. This is a little bit unusual because what we're going to do is just dig around in my head, which is not, <laughs> which, is, which I'm already scared about, and I'm sure you have some trepidation about. Last week, I mentioned to you that I have this framework, that everybody needs a story, a community, and a purpose. We all need a story by which we live, a community with whom we belong, where we know that we are known and that we know others. And then we need a purpose to which we can contribute. And my proposal to you last week was that the journey of the way of Jesus, of moving into this way of Jesus, meets every single one of those. It provides us a story, it provides us a community, and it gives us a really meaningful purpose to which we can head into. And that movement of Jesus does two things that are opposite, but that are simultaneous. They're constantly reaching back into the past, into the history, but they're also kicking forward into the future, asking new questions, deeper questions, questions you didn't even think we needed to ask. Today, I'd like to move into the forward movement and asking questions that I don't know if I'm even allowed to ask or ask some questions and pursue some things that we, some in some circles, you're not even allowed, you wouldn't even dare to even approach those kinds of questions. I am grounded in the way of Jesus. This is one of my favorite passages regarding Jesus' uh, kind of message about what the kingdom of, is. And in Matthew chapter 13, he provides the shortest parable of all of his parables. He starts off at the middle of this chapter here. Jesus told the crowd all these things in parables, Without a parable, he told them nothing. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth to speak in parables. I will proclaim what has been hidden from the foundation of the world. Now, that phraseology is actually a reference to Psalm 78. And that reference is so appropriate for what we are discussing, what we have discussed. Here's Psalm 78. The things that he is going to open his mouth and proclaim in parables are things that we have heard and we have known that our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their children. And here's this key phrase. We will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. They are for the next generation. We speak in these parables in these stories, specifically for the next generation, a movement forward. Later in Matthew 13, he tells this, the shortest of all his parables about the kingdom. Have you understood all this? They answered, yes. 
And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left that place. The kingdom of heaven is kind of like a scribe, like a master of a household, who brings out of his treasure some things that are new and some things that are old. I love this parable because he doesn't describe what new and old means. But there's this beautiful tension between, regarding what we've already talked about, the things in the past and the things that are to come. And what I'd like to do today is try to pursue what, is, what are those new things that we could possibly bring out? Things that many of you are probably already wrestling with, probably have already uh, thought about, things that you probably discuss about in your work and in your circle of friends. What are those new things? And I've entitled this particular segment of the series An Infinite Imagination. An Infinite Imagination. Would you say those words with me? An Infinite Imagination. I want to know how many of you recognize this. What is that? What? Missile Command. Yeah. All these college students like, what? You recognize this? Pitfall. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is, this is good stuff right here. And, of course, Pac-Man. Now, for those of you who are under several years old, you have no idea or maybe haven't seen these or maybe you've only seen these in retro stores or whatever. <clears throat> this, my friends, what I've just shown you is a glimpse of the future, a wave that is coming, if you were in 1943. <laughs> because this was the beginning of a whole new transformational era of my life. In 1977, Atari produced the Atari 2600. And I did not have time, but I still have this unit in my backyard. It is a glorious piece of equipment that doesn't work, and it really irritates me. But anyway, this was a glimpse into the future. This was about where things were going. And there was a joystick, and there was one button, which is all you needed which is more than anything anybody had ever done before. Rather than using a keyboard to play games, now there was a joystick. And this was launching into the future. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. And I spent way too many hours mastering every single one of these games. Yeah, every single one of those dots in Pac-Man is like one point, you know, and I, I reached like 15,000 points, which is like seven hours straight of play. It was like... Yeah. And if I'm really honest with you, there are days... When I miss those days where I could, you know, when you could just sit down and just mindless meditation. But that wasn't the future. That wasn't really the future. This was the future right here. And this transformed everything because no longer is a joystick and a button, but now there was some sort of device that could read what was coming off of the TV screen, right? This is called Duck Hunt and had this little gun that read the little pixels and everything like that. And then there was games like Zelda. This is really advanced technology, multiple worlds and imagination and different monsters and creatures. And then there was this brilliant game that I loved because there was a new controller that could, you know, hit the button multiple times. And this game was called 1943. And I thought, oh, cool, planes and, you know, bullets and lightning strikes and all that stuff. Completely oblivious to what was actually happening in 1943. <laughs> uh, that's a whole other issue that we'll have to talk about. Nonetheless, I, as a very youngin, thought that this was 
essentially the wave of the future. <clears throat> and I remember in uh, 1985 when this thing came out, the Nintendo, this game entertainment system, was selling at Long's Drug Store for $99.95. And it was selling at Thrifty's for $99.99. And I remember going to my mom and said, Mom, Long's has it for $99.95. It's a deal. We have to go now. So we bought one and I got a second one because I, I, I was in two different homes. So I had Nintendos everywhere and this is amazing. And this, my friends, was the future. This was the wave. And I remember at this particular time, thinking about this is what is coming. And, and the imagination that happened during that era and during that time was taking this idea of online video games, or, or not even online at the time, just video games in and of itself, and pushing it all the way forward and seeing about what the thing, what was to come. And then advanced several years. I remember the very first time I watched this particular TED Talk when Jeff Hahn debuted a thing that nobody had ever seen before. It was a screen in which your fingers through the, and some of you know this far better than I do, obviously, the static, the electrostatic energy from your fingers is able to, you know, conduct with all the sensors and not just one touch, but multiple touches. And this was huge. This was like no one had ever seen this before. And people had thought to themselves, is this even possible? And the answer was, yeah, it is possible. And this whole thing kept moving forward. And now... Um, I venture to say our little ones don't even think that this is news, right? Like, this is just how things work. I've read stories of little toddlers, you know, going up to magazines and going, you know, why, why isn't this working? Why aren't the pictures moving? Because this now has become the whole thing. This all begs the question, if you were to think about those movements, most of us really especially if we were born after that time, we don't think about those movements as huge advances. We actually think about them as normal. Um, and it begs the question as to what actually could happen in 2020, 2030, 2040, 2050. Can you believe it's almost 2020? I'm sorry to depress you all. I'm still waiting for that Y2K bug to hit. The things that we think about and we imagine in the future seem so far off, and oftentimes, because of our point of reference, can feel like um, really innovative, amazing, uh, impossible. The things that are coming, and they just evoke huge, massive feelings of imaginative power and possibility. But the things that came behind us, we don't think about at all. They just were. Um, it's summed up in Alan Kay's wonderful quote, Technology is anything invented after you were born. <laughs> and this idea, through all those technologies, is a very simple illustration. We could do this through many, many things. Illustrates one simple principle. The things that came behind us make sense to us, or we can get, or we understand. But the things that are coming in front of us are very, very difficult. The future is extremely difficult and hard to see. And the future is actually even fearful because it's disrupting of the things that we know now. The future is the thing that could possibly do away with all the things that we know and we understand and the things that are comfortable to us at this particular point. The problem is the future is coming. And the reality is probably most of the things that we're actually comfortable with are eventually going away. There's much talk in our area. We're in Silicon Valley with, you know, Waymo and 
other autonomous vehicles. There's much talk that our children that are running around here may never, ever drive. That's really almost impossible for me to think about. Like, when I was 15 and a half, I went right to the DMV to get my permit. And I was 16. On that day, I got my license. You want autonomous. I was autonomous. But we're moving into an era that's really going to be really hard for us to imagine. And all you need is one news report of an autonomous vehicle crashing. And then what are, what's the report? What's the reaction? See, it's all fearful. It's all. So the future is really hard to see. These are things that keep us from seeing what could possibly come. There are some other forces that are at work. That we are born curious, but because of these comfortabilities and safeties, we are bred to be compliant. Even though we are born curious and wanting to seek after and asking deep questions and discovery, there's something about the way in which we try to preserve our culture that keeps us just where we are, to be compliant. And it takes a really intentional pedagogy, a real intentional educational philosophy to allow a young person to push the boundaries of what is quote-unquote normal or acceptable. Alan Kay has this other quote that I really like that is going to lead into what I think um, I'd like to share. Again, these are ramblings and thoughts in my head. The reason why the future is so difficult is because we can't imagine it. But this quote, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. Then comes into play for how you actually mitigate, how you work with and are challenged with the things that are coming that we may be fearful about. That's a brief, extremely brief, abbreviated view of some of the things that we've all experienced through technology. Question, does this happen with theology? Does this happen with religion? Does this happen with faith? What about spirituality and what about Christianity? Here's a quote. I'd like for you to consider this. Papal indulgences must be preached with caution lest people erroneously think that they are preferable to other good works of love. Does anybody want to venture guess where this really advanced piece of theological technology comes from? Anybody want to guess? Ah, a little too far back. That was a good, good guess, Augustine. But think about the phrase papal indulgences. This is number 36 of Martin Luther's famous 95 Theses. Now, for those of you who don't know, Martin Luther was a, uh, was a priest. Well, he was a monk. He was a religious person within the Catholic Church. And remember, at this particular time, Catholic was a lowercase c. It just simply meant universal. Everybody who was a Christian was a Catholic. And the way in which the Catholic Church was behaving seemed to some not to be in accordance with what they actually saw in their text. And fascinatingly enough... There was a technology that helped spur on these movements. That was Gutenberg's printing press. Um, by the way, just because there, need to be, there needs to be some representation, Gutenberg did not invent the printing press. It was the Chinese. Go Asians. Um, <laughs> Gutenberg just invented the moving type. So just to clarify that for historical record. <laughs> this particular spiritual and, evolution, uh, spiritual and theological evolution in, in our history was a radical push forward, taking something that they thought had been the truth. And Luther comes along and says, wait a second, how we're practicing what we're thinking about. Now, if we took a look at this, we don't even think about papal indulgences today, or at least in our particular tradition, because of this particular person and many, many others during this particular time. It was a, 
advanced forward. It was a taking a look at the things that are coming down the pike. Then later on, within this stream of tradition, comes many, many others. One of the most famous, um, this gentleman by the name of Rick Warren, it is the number one best-selling hard copy, hardbound book in the history of books. 30 million copies were sold by 2007. I have seven of these copies in my library. <laughs> All seven of them were actually given to me, so I like to say this respectfully. 29 million copies, or 1 million copies sold, 29 million given away, is essentially how I, how I like to think about it. But in this particular iteration of faith, there was an explosion of um, uh, seeker sensitivism. Uh, there was an explosion of different ways of being culturally relevant to the church. Uh, there was even some people would file the purpose-driven life actually under the category of self-help. There was a movement of this expression of faith and of Christianity that was distinctly different from the old way of doing things. And it sold 30... It was extremely influential. It was extremely uh, powerful in the sense that it, it actually changed people's lives. But it was a very different expression from the old liturgies and the old ways in which people thought that church needed to be done. Again, these are just very, sim very simple examples. I am proposing to you that these evolutions are things that we've been going through forever. There has never been a time in our life, from the very, very beginning, in which movements and changes and shifts and evolutions haven't happened. I'm going to suggest to you that in addition to those shifts and changes and those evolutions, there's always an impulse to never want to change, to never want to move, to never want to imagine something into the future. Both of those things live. However, I will suggest to you that it feels to me like the core of the Christian ethic, the core of the way of Jesus, was fundamentally about pushing, progressing, moving forward, always pushing past. Diarmade McCullough wrote this really brilliant book, Christianity, and notice his subtitle. The first, what? 3,000 years. Now, if you know anything about our timeline, Jesus was born around 4 BC, and it's 2018. So we're looking at 2,014 years, maybe. So why did he subtitle this the first 3,000 years? He says in the opening parts of his book, I have given the book a subtitle which invites the reader to consider whether Christianity has a future. The indications, it must be said, can hardly be other than affirmatively. Affirmative. Yet it also points to the fact that what became Christian ideas have a human past in the minds of people who lived before the time of Jesus Christ. Deeply embedded in Christian tradition is a vocabulary of repentance and conversion. Both words mean, which mean turning around. So this book describes some of the ways in which individuals were turned around by Christianity, and I love this quote, but also the ways in which they could turn around what Christianity meant. Oh, that's really powerful. Not only were we transformed by this faith, but as we moved into the future, we had the ability to turn that faith around, to meet new challenges, to meet new realities, to meet new technologies. I mentioned last week that one of the ideas about this has been, that has been influential for me has been finite and infinite games. And 
James Carse fleshes this out in his book, and he says, a finite game is to be played for the purpose of winning, an infinite game for the purpose of continuing play. And finite games are bound by boundaries like beliefs and certainty. They're time-bound. A game begins and then it ends. But an infinite game has values and mystery, and it never ends. It goes on and on for eternal for eternity and everlasting. And my question for you is, is Christianity a finite game or an infinite game? What would you say? You're a little too quiet for me. (laughs) And I'm going to propose to you, it absolutely is an infinite game. That those values and that mystery and those boundaries get exploded as it moves into the future, as new realities come, as new technologies emerge, as new ideas emerge, pop into the cultural consciousness, and it just never ends. There's talk, actually, of science and technology moving so far and advancing so much that there really is no more need for religion or philosophy anymore. And the reason why I've been wrestling with this for a long time is because I've been asking the question, if Christianity ultimately is an infinite game, then it's ability to then adapt and break open its boundaries and to reach into deeper values and greater mystery means that it will constantly forever have relevance into the future, no matter what continues to happen and change. In his brilliant book, Christ Actually, James James Carroll actually talks about this, about the early movement of Jesus in the midst of oppression, technological change, empire, suffering, persecution, all sorts of crazy things were happening during that time. But instead of simply disappearing as so many peoples crushed by empire had and would again, the Jews, even as the Roman brutalizing continued intermittently for decades, retrieved from the tradition new meanings of old revelations, a fresh interpretation of the interpretations a fresh interpretation of the interpretations. They were taking old stories and infusing them with whole new sets of meaning to give them relevance for the persecution and the oppression and the violence that they were experiencing. They were able to do this only because once before, returning from Babylon 600 years earlier, they had reinvigorated their religion around an equivalent experience of total loss. All first century Jews, the followers of Jesus, decisively included were primed by an ancient tradition to transform that loss into a profound act of religious reinvention. What is he saying? The early Christian movement and the early Jewish movement came upon hard times. Oppression, they got exiled to foreign lands, they got brutalized, many of their people were sacrificed and murdered. And it is very easy for us to understand how that kind of experience could leave anybody of faith in complete despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you let my enemies run over me? This is in your Psalms. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, right? And this is part of the reason why I love the Bible is because in the text, we have woven into the fabric of our faith these yearnings and these cries and these anguishing yells up to the heavens. But one of the things that happened during that time was a profound act of religious reinvention during that season. In other words, even in the midst of that pain and that suffering, there was something there that allowed the people to rethink 
and to reimagine, to keep playing the infinite game of their faith, even into a brand new era of empire and bishops and institutions and hierarchy and oppression. And they reinvented it. They reimagined it. They made new interpretations of the old interpretations. They were able to think new again about it. In many of my conversations that I've had with many people about this whole era that we've had, especially during the most recent socio-political season, the role that evangelicals have played within our context, the idea that old forms of Christianity are just old and outdated and irrelevant, the response to many of that has been, therefore, I am no longer a person of faith. Now, listen, I understand that, and I, I'm, not, I'm not here to judge anybody. These are things that I've been wrestling with. I don't know if I want to be a Christian anymore. I definitely don't want to be an evangelical anymore. Please don't associate me with church anymore. In fact, I don't even want to attend church, and I have these conversations fairly, fairly frequently. But the reason why this hasn't settled for me is because within our tradition, there seems to be an ability to reimagine to no longer sustain a future of our faith based upon the things that we hate, the things that we deny, the things that we don't like, the things that have caused us pain and suffering. And our ancestors, our fathers and mothers of the faith prior to us had plenty to yell at God about, a lot to yell at God about. And somehow in the depth of their soul, they were able to find the core essence of covenant, of relationship, of love, of hope, of mystery, of meaning and purpose. Somewhere in the midst of that, they were able to find that and then reimagine what their faith expression could be into that new era. And I feel so uncertain in this particular day and age when I think that we're struggling with a very similar kind of tension. No longer wanting to be a part of things especially like a church and its institutions and all those particular religious constructs. But do we abandon it all? Just say, forget it? And sometimes live out of the PTSD of that particular experience? And again, I have understanding and respect for people who make these decisions. I feel like I want to challenge us and inspire us that there's a positive way forward, the way forward for us which is to reimagine, to dig deep and imagine once again what our life and our society and our politics and our families could be. But it's going to take a profound act of infinite imagination, digging deep into our history, pressing on into the future. So as we head into the future, all of the questions that we have about our faith, I think, are fun fundamentally valid and welcomed. For those of you who have been around Spark, you know that all of those questions are welcomed, and we can wrestle with those. But part of the framework that I'd like to lay down is that as we ask these questions, I would like us to see that we are not mere consequences of this world that happens to us. We are actually commissioned to be co-creators of it. That's the reimagining, taking this core essence of this Jesus movement and get to imagine what does autonomous vehicles and artificial intelligence and radically changing economic systems and intellectualism in the public square and taking all of that into consideration and help to recreate once again what this faith means and looks like into this future. I'm also going to suggest that the problem is not heresy. 
that the idea that you don't believe the right thing, therefore you must be a heretic. You don't believe the right thing, therefore you must not be a Christian. You don't believe the right thing, you must be on the outside. I'm going to suggest to you the problem is not that. The problem is we don't actually have a deep enough and powerful enough imagination as to what those questions that everybody is asking could possibly lead us toward. Like when somebody asks questions deep about philosophy and science and you know, string theory and multiverse and anything else that you guys are wrestling with, the question is not, well, that doesn't comport with my idea of God, therefore you're not a Christian. That's not the problem. The problem is we haven't imagined a faith that's big enough, broad enough, beautiful enough to encapsulate the fullness of that. Which means that some of the things that got us here at this particular point are not going to get us there into the future. Which means that there are some things that we are going to have to rethink. Reimagining and reinventing means that we have to rethink some of those. And I'm going to suggest to you that we not only get to imagine the future of the Christian faith, we are actually required to reimagine it. This is woven into our history. Our ancestors did this. Our most recent ancestors, meaning just decades ago, have done this. And I feel like if we're going to survive and we're going to thrive as a faith community into the future, we are also required to reimagine what that's going to look like into the future. I've been asking the question for several years now, what really is the next chapter of our story? We know story. We're going to still teach Genesis, Exodus. We're going to go back and revisit numbers. We're going to talk about our story. But I also want to swing forward and ask, what's the next chapter of this way? What does this look like? This is what I'm inviting myself and whoever else wants to come along with me into. In the email that I sent out, I asked this question, should Christianity continue to evolve? I hope you feel that my answer absolutely is yes. There's an evolution that we need to do. I don't know what that looks like. I don't have any answers. Again, I'm not providing for you my three points for what Christianity needs to be in the next, you know, 100 years. But setting the groundwork that we've been doing this for a long time, it's okay if we do it again. And then I also asked in the email, what does the way, meaning the way of Jesus, have to do with science, technology, public and popular intellectualism, sociopolitical upheaval, economic theories, demographic shifts, and alternative ethics and morals? What does it have to do with that? I'm going to suggest if our imagination is big enough, it has everything to do with it. Because we still have a story that is grounded in God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, everything. So that was a little bit abstract for some of us. Try to bring it home into maybe some practical questions that you can ask yourself. These are just very simple starting points to get us thinking about what really ultimately is the way forward for us. Some questions you might want to ask. What kind of prayers do you need to pray? Ask yourself, the prayers that we have inherited, the kinds of prayers that we have been praying, are wonderful and beautiful. Maybe there's new kinds of prayers. In the small group that I'm in on on Thursday nights, there's this framework of prayer called ACTS, A-C-T-S. And many of us have been uh, influenced by this framework. It's ACTS, to adore God, C, to confess your sins, T, thanksgiving, and S is supplication, a fancy word to mean to ask for something. And this is how many of us were taught to pray if you grew up in evangelical circles or Christian circles. And one of my proposals um, is, are there different ways that we need to now need to think about praying? We say the Lord's Prayer or the prayer that Jesus taught us every single week. Maybe there's new kinds of prayers that we need to pray What kind of rituals do we need to practice? Many of us know uh, about various rituals. We have practiced rituals of baptism, communion, 
Uh, marriage is considered a sacrament in Catholic circles and in other circles. Uh, prayers are, are usually considered rituals. There are, are there new rituals that we can come up with, new ways in which we can find space and time that are imbued with meaning? What kind of language do we need to adopt? We've already had this discussion about maybe do we use the word Christian anymore? Do we use the word evangelical anymore? What, what does it mean to be a person of faith anymore? There's maybe new language that we can adopt. What kind of new ideas maybe we need to consider? And most in question, most importantly, what new questions do we need to ask? What new questions do you need to ask? Um, the old questions will get us so far, but maybe there are new questions that we haven't even thought about that will push us even further. And of course, with all of these, I've indicated you, this is actually a we. We as a community, maybe we need to ask some deeper questions. And here are some of my initial thoughts. What if we moved from beliefs as the core essence of Christianity to behavioral values? If you've been around Spark, you already know that we've been wrestling with this. It's not what you believe. It's what kind of values influence how you behave. Maybe we move away from that Christianity word. Hey, would you publish a book entitled Leaving Christianity to Follow Jesus? (laughs) Maybe we move away from a religious construct into a whole new revolutionary way of being human modeled by this person of Jesus. Maybe we need to stop attending services. Church is too driven by this idea that you attend the service. What if we have moved away from attending a service to living a life of service? And what if we moved away from the book, oh boy, I'm going to get myself in trouble now, to living a life of the word? which has a whole bunch of deep meanings. Logos. These are just some initial thoughts that I have. I have kind of a whole bunch of additional notes from all those. But these are just some of the things that I've been thinking about. All that summed up in this phrase. Every scribe who has been trained from the kingdom for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of treasure what is new and what is old. And my opening pitch to you, my friends, in the way forward is that we are definitely bringing out wonderful things that are old. And this particular talk for you is to challenge us and maybe inspire us to bring out maybe some things that are brand new that we've never even thought about. In a way that allows us to play this game forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That we get to move the boundaries, that we get to shift the mystery, that we get to adapt to new realities, that we get to embrace new technologies and we get to figure out and see and imagine how this possibly could live into this new future. It's a wild and imaginative, infinite imagination. So that's my opening foundational bid for the way forward, the future of the Jesus movement in a rapidly changing world. Okay, Lord, I'm not quite sure exactly what I said, but hopefully um, you did something with it. And I pray, uh, again, that your spirit would just move us and touch us in some particular way. Um, You're doing something, God. And sometimes I'm just grasping at what I think you're doing. Sometimes I feel like I'm so in tune with it. And in all of it, I stand in awe and in wonder and in mystery. And pray that my life will truly be in submission to this movement, this way that you are pushing forward into this world. And thank you for that. In your name, amen.